to the Sunday Night Health Show podcast. Tonight on the podcast, we're talking about eating right to sleep tight, the importance of sleep, the intricate interplay of anger within the context of women's intimate relationships, common combat illnesses and injuries, 12 steps to prevent depression this winter, and the Canadian landscape of medical marijuana. The Sunday Night Health Show podcast starts now. This weekend, as we should every day, we remember those who volunteered, sacrificed, served, fought, and died for our freedom. We thank you, and we salute you as we salute those who made the ultimate sacrifice for our freedom. Good evening, and welcome to the show that educates everyone about overall health, making your relationships the best they can be. Remember, it is your health that is your wealth. I'm Maureen McGrath, a registered nurse, nurse continence advisor, sexual health educator. We've got Phil behind the boards tonight. Good evening, Phil. How are you doing there? Maureen, there is no better way that I would like to spend my 34th year on this planet (laughs) than with you, and I get to do that tonight. Happy birthday. Did you get my cake? Uh, I'll go check my mailbox when I get home. Okay, yeah, I'm still waiting for it. (laughs) It's the big sparkly one. Anyway, happy birthday. (laughs) Thank you. I'm delighted that you're spending it with us, me and us. Thank you so much. Very honored. Um, If I had access to music, I I could sing you. I could sing to you. Happy birthday. Anyway, but we'll spare everybody that. The mic is wide open tonight, and the number to call or text is 1 877 399 9898. That's 1. 877-399-9898. 877-399-9898. Would love to hear from you. Although we cover a variety of health subjects, the show is not a replacement for a visit to your doctor. On the program tonight, we are talking about medical marijuana, the landscape in Canada, common combat injuries, steps to ward off depression as we head into the winter months, women's intimate relationships, and how misdirected anger affects everyone, and not in a good way. We've got lots to talk about tonight, but right now... And now, Maureen's Health Headline. In this fast-paced environment, do you find yourself having late-night snacks? Well, it has become a bit of a widespread ritual for Canadians. But have you ever wondered how these nighttime indulgences affect your sleep patterns? Well, I was wondering about it because I seem to snack a little bit more as the winter nights come upon us. I typically don't like to eat after 6 p.m., but I can. I have to be honest, and uh, I've been known to do so, especially lately. So I have decided to invite my next guest uh, to the program to talk about this in a recent survey about Canadians' um, engagement in late-night snacking before falling asleep. Joining me on the line is my fitness pal neurologist, Dr. Christopher Winter. He has practiced sleep medicine and neurology in Charlottesville, Virginia since 2004, but has been involved with sleep medicine and sleep research since 1993. He is the owner of Charlottesville Neurology and Sleep Medicine Clinic and CNSM Consulting. Good evening, Dr. Winter. Thanks for joining the show. Hey, thank you so much for having me. And uh, all the way from Virginia, huh? (laughs) Yeah, no, I split my time between Virginia and Florida. So I'm actually in Florida right now, but uh, looking forward to spending Thanksgiving in Virginia where the leaves actually turn colors. Nice, <laughs> so nice. nice. We had, we've had a beautiful fall up here in Canada as well. Florida, now I'm jealous. Anyway, um, <laughs> I get a lot more accomplished in the summer weather. Anyway, I love the Florida weather. So thanks so much for joining the program. Um, so well, very interesting. Yeah, that's awesome. Um, so very interesting. I, I know that uh, you're going to talk to us about a particular study that my fitness pal did around uh, late night snacking for Canadians. So can you tell us a little bit about that? 
Yeah, so MyFitnessPal is a um, has been sort of in the food tracking sort of space for since I think 2005, and so now they have launched an app that basically allows you to you know take the food that you eat and sort of pair it with your sleep data, and so they actually. You know, got a lot of information from you know, Canadians in terms of uh, what they're eating, and, and showed that you know a lot of individuals find that you know they're I think over half of individuals are finding that the sleep that they're getting is being impacted by the food choices that they're making. So rather than you know some sleep expert like me getting on there and saying, hey, these foods are great for your sleep and these aren't, this really mm-hmm. allows people to sort of go on their own journey of figuring out, hey. I don't believe it when they say, you know, beer affects sleep negatively. You know, I'm going to log this in and see if the nights where I have, you know, alcohol before I go to bed is actually creating worse sleep than when I don't. And so it really allows people to sort of personalize their own sort of food journeys. That's exactly what I was thinking, that it's like personalized medicine, which is kind of coming down the pike a little bit. Um, I I believe that survey found that 67% of Canadians engage in late night snacking before falling asleep. Was there a particular time frame that um, that we're munching? I don't know that that was actually in the the actual the the survey um, in terms of you know, right before they go to bed or sometime between dinner and when they go to bed. But I think the late night was anything considered to be after dinner, but prior to going to bed. Mm-hmm. And, and most Canadians believe that their nutrition intake impacts their sleep. In fact, 92%, which was really surprising to me. Um, and th- there seems to be a little bit of a disconnect beca- between the 92% of Canadians that know that this is not good for them um, with the high percentage of people who actually engage in it as well. Yeah, no, it was surprising to me too. I mean, I think that when you, I think that the dietary information now is so ubiquitous that we've moved past the age of ignorance and more towards the, I know what I'm supposed to do. I'm just going to start doing that tomorrow. Or so, I, I don't know what the, the answer is, but I, I, the number of people that don't, you know, really sort of pay attention to the idea that food impacts health or food impacts sleep. You know, I think we've done a good job educating people about that. It's just taking the step to you know, stop eating the bowl of ice cream right before you go to bed or the spicy chicken wings right before you go to bed. That, that changing the behavior is often many times much harder than changing the knowledge. Absolutely. It certainly is. And, and it's not just sleep that it probably affects, but it probably does impact waistlines, cardiovascular health, mood. Um, but what are, did they, did the study go into what kinds of foods um, people were eating? Not that I'm aware of. Um, I don't remember it being sort of separated out in that way. Mm-hmm. And, and how, why is it that late night snacking impacts sleep? How do we know that? Yeah, there's a lot of things that sort of, impact that that situation. The first is that um, some foods are actually going to sort of promote neurotransmitters in your brain that tend to sort of support wakefulness. If you think about, uh, you know, after eating a big meal, like a Thanksgiving type of meal, it's very carb heavy. 
those carbs often get sort of shunted into chemicals like serotonin and melatonin that make us sleepy. Other foods have the opposite sort of effect. So that's one thing to kind of keep in mind. Second, this eating in general and having a full stomach digestion can interfere with normal sleep, as can indigestion. So if we're eating foods that are causing us to be have gas or, or GERD or reflux, those things often impact sleep as well, too. So we always try to counsel people to sort of start limiting their food intake prior to going to bed because a lot of what people eat, if it has caffeine in it, um, alcohol, those things can really be negatives when it comes to, to, to their sleep that night. Absolutely. And you mentioned GERD, so gastroesophageal reflux disease. A lot of people um, have that, and especially people uh, may be more at risk for that as they age. And and that's basically, it can be a variety of symptoms. It can mild to moderate of, you know, kind of burping and gas and burning, those types of things. Um, is that something that can be mitigated uh, or at least uh, reduced or even eliminated um, by, you know, stopping eating in the evening or changing eating habits? It can. Um, and there have been several studies that have... I, Studies have actually shown that as, as well, too, that a lot of the – and these things are often silent. So as sleep clinicians, when we see individuals in our clinic you know, trying to help them with sleep, what they're often saying is, I have trouble falling asleep, or I wake up a lot in the night, or I wake up and I can't get back to sleep. A lot of times, some of the, the, the disease states and conditions and symptoms that you were describing are actually what's happening. They're just not aware of it. So – Reducing food and paying attention to food prior to going to bed can be a real easy, tangible, concrete step for helping people to eliminate that. So, you know, a lot of times patients are like, you know, last Tuesday, for whatever reason, I slept great. So, you know, taking the step of, okay, well, using some sort of app to try to figure out, well, was there something dietarily different about mm -hmm. that Tuesday than your typical night in terms of what you ate and the timing of it? You know, using that to sort of can save you a trip if you can kind of figure out the problem yourself. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. You know, it's easier said than done because, you know, I, I do a review of medications for anybody that comes in to see me in my clinical practice, as most healthcare providers, I would imagine, do. And um, so many patients are on pantaprazole, the PPI inhibitors, um, which, you know, has some side effects and even some long-term potential side effects. It's a quick fix. Um, why do you think it is that we want that quick fix instead of making behavioral changes or, you know, modifiable changes in our lifestyle and, and diet? Um, and even though we know, you know, the PPI inhibitors may come with some, some risk. And I think there's even for longer term use, moderate use, um, there's a risk of de uh, dementia with PPI inhibitors. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and, and we see those used a lot because they're describing sleep interruption. And, and so, right, it's a quick fix. I mean, I think, you know, when it comes to quick fixes, I don't think people want anything fixed more rapidly or more you know, quickly than their sleep. Mm -hmm. And, you know, one of the things that we talk about a lot as sleep clinician is, clinicians is if you're struggling with your sleep, that's something that's going to take work. It's going to take time. You know, an individual says, look, it takes me six hours to fall asleep at night, and I dread going to bed every night. That's not something that we can fix quickly, and generally not something that's going to be fixed with a pill. I mean, the, the sleep aid market 
in at least the United States is enormous. You know, mm-hmm. despite when you actually look at the data of what a sleeping pill does for you, it makes you fall asleep, what, you know, three minutes faster, an additional six minutes of sleep at night, yet people are desperate. They'll take anything. They'll buy any technology if it'll mean that they can get to sleep a little faster or stay asleep a little bit better. So I think that it, it just in general, we don't want to do the research. We don't want to do the work involved in terms of, you know, losing weight, uh, getting, you know, uh, you know, our sleep sort of in line, doing things to improve our nutrition. These things are hard for a lot of people and they're not fun. So I, you know, I can understand why people would want to you know, take shortcuts. If I can get the same thing out of a pill as I could, you know, limiting my food before I go to bed and sleeping with my head slightly elevated and, you know, losing a little bit of weight, a, a lot of people are just going to choose the medication, which is really unfortunate because, a lot of times, like you said, the, the medications come with their own list of problems as well, too. They certainly do. And I just wanted to mention um, the PPIs for GERD. That's what, what I was referring to. And some of the other risks are increased risk of kidney disease, osteoporosis, low magnesium or vitamin B12, pneumonia, stroke, and even uh, contracting C. diff. Uh, C. difficile, which is an awful diarrhea. There we are. Okay. Welcome back to the show. Thank you so much for tuning in this evening. Awesome to have you. And awesome to have my fitness pal neurologist, Dr. Christopher Winter. Thanks so much for staying on the line, Dr. Winter. I have a question from a listener. Of course. We're talking about yeah. sleep and nutrition. How healthy are those cooling bed mattresses from Janet in St. Albert? I think they're really helpful. I don't have any financial relationship with them, but when you think about sleep, Temperature can influence influence it significantly. So the, the the situations I find it to be most helpful in, if you have two different partners who like the bedroom two different temperatures, and you're the person who likes it kind of cold, those bed toppers can be extremely helpful in terms of helping you get a cold night sleep while your partner has whatever temperature they have. I found it to be very helpful in individuals who deal with hot flashes. Mm-hmm. And individuals who don't want to spend a lot of money like you live in Florida and cool your entire house just to make your bedroom cool. I do a podcast about sleep. It's called Sleep Unplugged. And we talked a lot about temperature in episode 25. We just did an episode recently, uh, episode 71, about extreme cold, which was like cold plunges and cold tanks. And, and there's probably a reason uh, and a positive effect on sleep for people who do those things as well, too. Awesome. Thanks. Um, thanks, Janet, for your question. I also just want to go back to the myfitnesspal.com, the app, um, and how that yeah. works. Could you just tell us quickly how that works? And you can go to myfitnesspal.com, or I'm sure the app store to get it. But but I love anything that's biofeedback, but you go ahead. <laughs> yeah, I do too. I think that's extremely important. So basically, MyFitnessPal has been around for a very long time. I think it's the most popular global nutrition food tracking app. So what they've done is they've integrated their app now with several different platforms, um, Apple Watches, Auras, Whoop Bands, Withing Devices, uh, Garmin. So now if you've got one of these devices, your device's data is now going to integrate with the food logging that you do and help you create connections in terms of what foods seem to be supporting your sleep, promoting good cycles of REM sleep and deep sleep. So that data now is going to start to kind of become useful. You know, I think data is everywhere and it's great. 
If we all had MRIs in our house, we could all take pictures of our pancreas if we wanted to. But the problem often becomes, hey, I've got this great data. I don't know what to do with it. And so the MyFitnessPal app is really working hard to make it a tangible change that, hey, we've noticed that when you eat X, you don't sleep as well. Maybe you don't eat so much X right before you go to bed. So they're really trying to create a tangible plan for individuals to improve the quality of their sleep through their food. And it's really a tool of the knowledge to help you build healthy habits of your life. Uh, we don't have too much time left, but um, quickly, uh, what do you recommend uh, in terms of diet and nutrition for people to get the best possible sleep? Yeah, it's, I think that balanced nutrition is extremely important. I, I think that individuals can really you know, impact the nature of their sleep by looking at what they eat. Um, and, and there's, you know, making sure that you're getting a very, you know, broad array of micronutrients because all those things can help with your sleep. We did a podcast episode. It was episode 21 of Sleep Unplugged. It was called Sleep and Food, You Sleep What You Eat. And that really goes into a lot of detail about specific food groups and how they can help to support sleep. Grains, tart cherries, yogurts, uh, hummus has tons of tryptophan in it. So all kinds of good information about specific foods and how they're going to impact the sleep you get that night. Awesome. And how about when we're stressed, cortisol levels going up? How does that impact our sleep? Absolutely. So sleep and anxiety do not create great, is not a great friendship. And when you look at individuals who are struggling with insomnia, there's often a big anxiety component to it. And some of that is normal. Like we want to be able to be scared enough not to sleep. But one of the things that we focus on a lot in the podcast, I've written a book called The Sleep Solution, Why Your Sleep is Broken and How to Fix It, is really about managing stress and the resultant cortisol that comes with it in order to help us sleep better. All right. The Cannabis Act came into force on October 17th, 2018. But the landscape of medical cannabis in Canada and the barriers to it still exist. Joining me on the line is Max Monahan Ellison, health policy expert and board chair of patient advocacy and research group Medical Cannabis Canada. He's here to discuss the policy landscape, upcoming reviews of the cannabis regulations, the review process, and what an effective medical access program should look like. Good evening, Max. How are you? Hi, I'm great. Thanks so much for having me and talking about this issue. Well, thanks so much for joining the program. So patients basically get authorization from their health care provider. And how can they access cannabis for medical purposes? Currently. So there's a few ways, you know, there's the medical cannabis system in Canada, which is, you know, drugs that haven't gone through a clinical trial, like, um, you know, let's say your prescription medication, but are still accessed with the oversight of a healthcare professional. So that's under what's now called the Cannabis Act, but it's actually been in existence in some form since 2001 um, for medical access, but now they all fall under, you know, both rec and medical fall under this Cannabis Act since 2018. Mm -hmm. So if a patient wants to, you know, use cannabis for medical purposes, there's a few ways. So legally, through this Cannabis Act, they can get what's called a medical authorization or a medical document um, from their healthcare professional that authorizes a certain amount of cannabis, usually in grams, that then they have to convert if it's, 
um, you know, a oil or another product, which there are conversions, and then they bring that document to a federally licensed medical seller. Uh, this is usually online, and then that product is shipped to the individual um, once they set that up. And there are other models that allow for a more complicated way to access it in person, but this is mostly online. Then someone can also just go into a recreational store and buy cannabis like any other person. And then, of course, there's actual drugs based on cannabis that are approved and that you can get prescribed, like um, Sativex or Epidiolex, um, uh, uh, available some in Canada, some not. Mm-hmm. Now, can people also register with Health Canada to produce um, a small amount of cannabis for their own medical purposes? Yes. Um, so you can register both in the recreational market, although, I mean, you don't have to register, but you can grow cannabis legally, both recreationally and medically. Um, and you, you have to register with Health Canada to grow through the medical system. Now, that, the numbers are much smaller. Um, you know, it's about, if you look at the number of registrations, they're about probably 10% um, of all of them are actually for growing, and most of them are for actually accessing cannabis from a healthcare professional. But the numbers are hard because there's a difference between people who actually are taking cannabis for medical reason and how many people are actually using this market, which is incredibly restricted. So, you know, Health Canada reports as of March, about 200,000 plus Canadians are accessing cannabis, you know, or from a, a licensed seller. Um, but that number could be even smaller because it's recorded in terms of the number, number of medical documents out there. Uh, the other way is obviously growing, and that's only about 20,000 registrations in March. Now, for context, Health Canada also estimates, you know, millions of Canadians actually take cannabis for a medical reason. So it just shows you how complicated and hard it is to actually just access cannabis through this system. Mm-hmm. So people are, there are way more people taking it than have actually, than are, than are buying it directly from a federally licensed seller. Is that what you mean? Or Exactly. Or... And, you know, that causes actually a lot of challenges. So we, uh, my, my organization, Medical Cannabis Canada, as well as a bunch of other amazing stakeholders like the University of, uh, of uh, Manitoba, other patient organizations and researchers, uh, did a study of about 5,000 Canadians who use cannabis for medical purposes. And we found that those who don't have that medical authorization are, you know, more likely to go to uh, unregulated sources like a dealer um, and less likely to speak to a healthcare professional about their cannabis use, more likely to go to sources like the Internet or a friend for medical advice on their cannabis use. So it, it is, you know, a huge gap and it can cause some problems uh, in terms of health outcomes that do need to be addressed. I'm certain that it can. You know, you hear people say that they're, you know, taking gummies for sleep or, you know, just this little bit. And, you know, it does seem like uh, a rodeo out there (laughs) in terms of uh, what people are taking or if they even know what they're taking, Um, especially if they are relying on non-evidence-based and unqualified sources of information like Google, Dr. Google or recreational cannabis stores or, or social media, or as you said, you know, speaking to friends about it. And, and, you know, if it works for one person, then somebody assumes that it's going to work for them. But I did hear of a patient recently who said that they had taken 
something. I, I don't even know. I'm not sure that they knew, but that they were paranoid and they got sick and, you know, they'd never do it again, basically. Well, and that's really the, the challenge is that like any drug, it's not for everyone. And there's hundreds of potential contraindications with other medications. There's, you know, risks, especially if you have existing mental health conditions. And so it's so important to actually speak to a doctor. But here's the problem. Most physicians in Canada are uncomfortable discussing or, you know, authorizing cannabis for medical use um, for patients. So you have this really challenging two things happening at the same time. If you want to access medical cannabis through a healthcare professional, often your G GP or your family doctor or a walk-in is likely going to be hard to have that discussion with or um, feel uncomfortable authorizing you. Then when you actually try to access it through that medical market, it's confusing. I'm sure anyone in your, uh, in your listener pool uh, hearing me talk about it is like, what is he talking about? This, you know, gram, you know, conversion, all these things, which obviously can be, are, are done on the document and by physicians as well, but it's super confusing. So it's no wonder the majority are not even going there. And then that's when you get issues around things like, you know, uh, not even knowing how much they're taking, not uh, really understanding uh, what they should take for what, you know, issue and even if it's right for them. And, you know, I went through that personally. I am not currently an active medical cannabis user, but I was on antidepressants in high school and I was able to find success weaning myself off of them using cannabis because the side effect profile was quite brutal for me of my antidepressants. However, then I definitely was taking far too much cannabis and I was having negative outcomes in terms of things like memory and actually sleep disturbance and challenges with, you know, eating regulation. And so all of that was because I had no idea what I was doing. And, mm -hmm. you know, I think that's why, again, just what my organization, what this data that we were working on is so focused on is. How do we actually make this system more aligned with um, guidance from healthcare professionals and make it so that people actually want to access it? Because it's so much easier to just go to a recreational store or go to your neighborhood dealer, which is still thriving. Um, so it is a big challenge. It, it certainly is. We're going to go to break if you don't mind. Um, but I'd like to come back and uh, get to, down to the root of things like like cost. Is it more expensive to go to a federally licensed seller? And also, how do we educate the doctors? I'm Maureen McGrath. My guest is Max Monahan Ellison, health policy expert and board chair of patient advocacy and research group Medical Cannabis Canada. We're talking medical cannabis. Welcome back to the Sunday Night Health Show. Do you use medical cannabis? How do you access it? We're talking about this with Max Monahan Ellison, health policy expert and board chair of patient advocacy and research group Medical Cannabis Canada. Thanks so much for staying on the line with me, Max. I really appreciate it. Oh, my pleasure. Happy to dive in. Oh, excellent. So according to the Health Canada data, um, the, you know, 20% of 
patients are less likely to speak or seek information from a healthcare professional when they feel they might benefit from medical cannabis. So it, it tells me that the doctors have not been educated about this or, or lack the experience. Um, is that something that needs to be done is to, to educate the providers in this country about this treatment option for patients? And there's a number of conditions, uh, ADHD for one, depression, um, that might be beneficial for patients. Yes. And um, so, you know, if we look at all the data out there, so our study as well as Health Canada's, the big issue is that healthcare professionals feel there's not enough research, um, which is fair. There is a research gap in the space for sure, uh, as well as, you know, challenges with stigma around uh, both the patient requesting it and the drug itself as, you know, you know, I don't need to be an expert in this. Just go to any store and grab it. So there's a lot that needs to be done. The first is that, you know, once recreational cannabis was legalized in 2018, the companies uh, who were, you know, very invested there essentially took a lot of their money outside of research and medical to try to win in the short term in the recreational market. And as anyone who's owned a cannabis stock before has seen, that didn't really work out. And mm -hmm. so we essentially lost a ton of momentum in terms of medical research. And at the same time, uh, the good news is there are you know, companies developing drugs that physicians would be comfortable prescribing because they're going through clinical trials, but that takes you know, a long time. And so what we need now, because 10 years is far too long to wait when people are using this drug now, is uh, one, just more general research into cannabis and its effectiveness. Two, um, support at the actual college level. And, you know, you're an RN, I believe, which is probably one of the most essential healthcare providers in this country. And they play a huge role in cannabis clinics already. But looking at that type of education for RNs, physicians going through, um, you know, medical training, having things both through your colleges and through your initial training in university is so essential. But Health Canada's own data they usually provide is out of date um, given to, to physicians. So they also need to take a leadership role in giving more information to doctors and healthcare professionals that's up to date and you know, current. And one of the problems, I think, is that there is a lack of, of evidence and basically healthcare providers, nurses, physicians, um, pharmacists, you know, typically practice in a way that is evidence informed. You get a lot of, um, you know, people on social media promoting things that there's no science behind them. They've perhaps made up programs. Um, they give them gitchy names, you know, to get people to buy um, in this case, people are using it for medical purposes, thinking that uh, it's benefiting them. And, and there can be a placebo effect here as well. Um, but, you know, it, I think it's another challenge for physicians um, because a lot of physicians may not, you may not get buy-in from nurses and doctors. Exactly. And what I think it comes down to, and what I really want to focus on here is it comes down to also leadership uh, around the regulatory system. So the Cannabis Act is basically structured so that the recreational system mirrors the medical system. And that's done for a reason, is the government was very concerned around preventing misuse instead of promoting safe use. So, mm -hmm. you know, I think the biggest issue here we have is that, you know, in the medical market, 
physicians aren't being told that it's it's heavily endorsed uh, by the regulations or a priority. So their incentive to really invest their own time is low. At the same time, uh, the issue we have on the patient side is they're so dissuaded from even trying that they're not really even actively seeking that support and they're just figuring it out on their own. And so there's a number of ways that can be fixed. Like for example, you know, we recommend uh, looking at a system where patients can access in a pharmacy. Uh, and that obviously means compromises. Like we should, pharmacies are not gonna provide a dried flower, but there are oils and capsules that'll be a bit more easy to store uh, in a pharmacy and would allow a patient to actually you know, go through a more traditional route of access. That's really, really helpful um, in terms of kind of normalizing the drug. At the same time, too, you know, it's understandable that physicians are uncomfortable and we have to focus on what are the areas where the risk is so far greater than the harm, and that's a few key things. So rare disease where you know, there aren't that many available treatments is where a lot of patients are reporting positive outcome. But my biggest focus is around chronic pain because the majority of um, patients in our study actually reported chronic pain as the, the symptom they were treating. And mm -hmm. we found that uh, about half of patients using cannabis were able to reduce their use of opioids including, or sorry, not opioids, of other medications with a large portion actually reducing their opioid use. So mm -hmm. if I were to make the argument, you know, we have an opioid epidemic in this country and around the world, why can't we just, you know, if we know a patient is having some success reducing their use of just that drug, I would say often cases with oversight of a healthcare professional, you know, that is a huge opportunity to reduce harm uh, and improve care. So I think if we shift the narrative away from I don't want someone to misuse this drug and figure out a way to be more collaborative between the patient and the physician, we can really see you know, success in doing things like reducing the use of really harmful medications or um, potentially tackling a problem where a patient is struggling to find success elsewhere. Mm -hmm. And I think probably healthcare providers are, are thinking, you know, why replace one drug with another? Um, that has been associated with, you know, negative implications. CBD doesn't get you high, but uh, the idea that it's not psychoactive is a bit of a misconception, I would say, because it does change one's consciousness. And if any listeners out there use medical cannabis, I'd love to hear from you. 1-877-399-9898. Text me. Text me your experience. You know, does it make you feel mellow? Do you have chronic pain? And do you experience less pain, which is, I, I know some patients report um, from using medical cannabis, and then also they feel more comfortable. Um, but, you know, also some CBD products, and this goes to the regulation, I guess, and the rodeo out there, do contain small amounts of THC, which is, you know, underscores your point that this should be in the hands of healthcare providers, I guess, rather than people just going, you know, to the um, recreational market for it. Exactly. But at the same time, I also have to acknowledge the challenges that both physicians and patients are facing. You know, mm -hmm. we have hope that the, the Cannabis Act will be updated to be, you know, more effective. And the government has been uh, pushing forward reviews and, and we expect to see hopefully some recommended updates in the next year or so, but TBD. But it's it's completely understandable. I mean, a patient 
I, I work actually primarily in areas outside of, of cannabis for my job and heart failure in mental health in ultra rare disease. And no matter what the condition is or the medication, patients often have to really fight to try new things if something's not working. And it's a hard battle. And it's often really hard and even outside of this drug class to to get support. And on the physician side, they are trained to be evidence-based. And when they don't feel there is access to enough information, they don't feel comfortable, you know, having this more nuanced uh, dialogue and treatment approach with their patients. So it's completely understandable that a patient, when they're not being given support by the legal market in terms of medical and not really getting the support they need from a physician to go and just figure it out on their own. Uh, and it's completely understandable that a physician would feel reluctant. But that's why we really need leadership both in regulation as well as just investment in research um, to really make this a long-term solvable problem. Yeah, absolutely. And the education as well. Well, thanks so much for all the great work that you're doing. Really appreciate it and appreciate you coming on the show. Thank you so much. And appreciate you shedding light on this issue. You are so welcome. That was Max Monahan, Ellison, health policy expert and board chair of Patient Advocacy and Research Group, Medical Cannabis Canada. For more information on this, you can go to medicalcannabissurvey.ca. You got questions? She's got answers. The nurse is in for Nurse Talk. Welcome to the second hour of the Sunday Night Hell Show. We've got Phil behind the boards tonight, and it's his birthday. Phil, how's the birthday going so far? Best birthday <laughs> I've ever had, Maureen, because oh, I get to spend it with you. You're the best. Oh, my gosh. We should have had a party. We still can. <laughs> we should, certainly can. Absolutely. Anyway, don't you feel free to text in your happy birthday messages to Phil, one 399 9898 That's one 399 9898 We got lots to talk about in this hour of the program. We're going to be talking about at your request, uh, BMI. Uh, what does it mean and what are the numbers and what's it all about? And also going to be talking about as we head into this winter, how to ward off those winter doldrums, those uh, blue, the winter blues, as they say. And also just going to expand a little bit upon the um, in, women's intimate relationships and misdirected anger. So we'll talk about that as well. But right now, um, you know, we, at this time of year, of course, uh, with Remembrance Day, we we express our deep gratitude to the veterans who have served and, you know, we appreciate our freedom, but, you know, we should do this every day because this is so important. And it's not just that people went to war and have returned. Oftentimes we don't think about this part. People go off to war and they don't return as the same person they were when they left. They face many common combat injuries. And joining me on the line to talk about that is Dr. Tomi Mitchell. She's a medical doctor, family physician, who is also a productivity coach. Her website is wellnessstrategies.com. That's with three S's right there in the middle, wellnessstrategies.com. Good evening, Dr. Mitchell. How are you? Good evening, Maureen. I'm well. And you? I'm very well. Thank you so much. Um, we're here celebrating Phil's birthday, <laughs> but also <Nice>. we are <laughs> reminded of um, what we owe for our freedom and liberties and securities um, to the veterans who have served and, and those who are serving still today. 
Um, but something we don't think about, um, as we see the parades and the return home and, you know, for the most part, it's, you know, all looking great, but I mean, it has to be so traumatic. Let's start with the psychological issues that, uh, can occur to veterans as a result of, uh, going to war. Yeah, so many big ones, PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder, really about remembering sometimes horrific things that they would have experienced from their um, from their fellow vets, from the people that they've served, being in situations where they felt helpless and perhaps having to make choices that they knew was the right thing to do for country, but perhaps was not the most comfortable thing to them to do as a person. Trauma, mm-hmm. physical, mental trauma. People lose function of their body, right? People come back with injuries. Um, people's lives are changed. Even if they don't come back with an injury, going to war, serving will change one. Absolutely. And what are some of those injuries that um, that can occur that we don't think about? It's those invisible injuries. Right, it can be those behavioral changes. Someone may come back and be withdrawn, maybe angry outbursts, confusion, memory loss, struggling to hold down a job, right? Because mm-hmm. you're not able to keep that the information in your in your mind. Definitely the mental health piece, and then there's the health exposures. War has gotten very advanced, like the kind of warfare we're dealing with now is so much different than that of a hundred years ago, you know, in the end of World War One. Like we're dealing mm-hmm. with chemical warfare. We're dealing with agents that we don't even neurotoxins. We're dealing with machine guns that can do extraordinary damage in mm-hmm. just moments. And even just visualizing that death and destruction, unfortunately we have war going on in the world now and have but, been for yeah several months and um, just witnessing not only just what's happening to them, uh, but also seeing all of, all of this um, despair and, and death and destruction and um, people yeah. dying in front of them. And I mean, this one is particularly horrific. I think yeah. any war is. Um, and, you know, also, I mean, it must cause tremendous stress as well. And, and mental health is so important, especially as people transition back into civilian life. Yeah. Um, it's such a challenge and, and we don't think about, about that. Um, you know, it's maybe like having a car accident, but on steroids, you know, like just yeah. the, you, people are traumatized when they have a car accident or there's an assault or something, but this is day after day after day, night, you know, the sleeping conditions are horrible. The food I can't imagine is very good. Um, I mean, it just, I, I can't even describe it. It would just be so horrific, but, horrific. um, yeah. And, and do we, I, I mean, you may or may not know this, but do we prepare our veterans for this? Um, you know, I know when recruitment happens, it's all, you know, the benefits and the advantages and, and this Thank kind of thing. Do they talk about the PTSD and the stress and the anxiety and the sleepless nights? Yeah. From, like, from what I'm getting the feel from in many professions, including for veterans, it's not talked about enough. It's mm-hmm. sugar-coated, right? Mm-hmm. It's, you know, it's there, but they don't, Put it like you will be a different person. Mm-hmm. Like you are. <laughs> it's profound. Like I talked to um, police officers. A lot of them will say that they were not prepared for what they went into. Like it's mm-hmm. changed them. Even just a few years of service. So 
it's shocking. It's you, you can't be the same person and see what you see and then come home where people are complaining about gas prices or the weather or this, and you're thinking, oh, my goodness, if only you knew right. what we deal with, right? And then being re-triggered because everything's on the TV, on social media, so you're hearing war, you're hearing memes, you're seeing memes, you're just seeing all those things that remind you of something that is challenging. Exactly. And we, um, they also suffer from physical um, yeah. ailments and, and injuries, combat injuries, like first and second and third degree burns. We don't think about that. Of course, yeah. they're going to suffer burns. What are some of the other things that they suffer? I've seen, like, I've seen amputations. Like, um, mm-hmm. Accelerated heart disease. I've seen MS. I've seen a lot of them come back with these autoimmune conditions. Mm-hmm. Um, like so nerve Parkinson's, damage. Nerve damage, exactly. Parkinson's, Alzheimer's, acceleration. Like it's mm-hmm. pretty much anything under the sun. And the challenging thing, it's sometimes hard to pinpoint cause and effect. But we do Absolutely. know that there's an impact. And that is part of the challenge, proving to vet, Veterans Affairs or to their health provider that this is, the contributing factor to their current state. Like mm-hmm. it's a lot. It, it certainly is. And the shrapnel wounds as well, you know, oh, goodness. Yeah. Are, are something in and of themselves, not to mention spinal cord injuries and paralysis mm. uh, can yeah. occur, you know, given the artillery and, and the gunfighting and nerve damage and loss of sight and hearing. Is that something that occurs as well? Yes. I'm glad you made, you mentioned hearing because hearing is, profoundly impacted when you're around rapid gunfire loud for hours and months and you know long periods of time and that's something we can't take back and imagine Mm -hmm. all the things you'll miss hearing when you come back home that's right exactly and and something that we probably have seen maybe you know on television or in the media is limb loss um can be something but that that changes a person's life um, entirely. It doesn't end somebody's life and, and nor does paralysis or spinal cord injury. You know, people can accommodate, they can overcome uh, the ambulation piece, but they'll have issues with bladder and bowel and sexual health. And, yeah. you know, limb loss can lead to self-esteem issues and functional issues as well. Um, so we don't think of the, you know, we think of the combat injury and then, oh my gosh, they suffer this, but there is a domino effect of other health conditions that are associated with that combat injury. 100%. The impact from being a veteran is profound. And another reason mm-hmm. why you and ourselves and our listeners are thankful for the individuals who have sacrificed, who have sacrificed themselves and their family, their happiness for this country. And we're forever indebted. Mm-hmm. And I think all this. Mm-hmm, go ahead. Oh, I was just going to say, I just think that we think about thanking them, but we really don't know what they endured. You know, we don't think about all of the injuries. And I know that even, you know, close to a million uh, veterans in Canada um, have suffered from PTSD. And so, you know, I'm sure the brain injuries and the spinal cord injuries and the nerve damage, I mean, that must just be hundreds of thousands of people. Yes, and I've seen them over my clinical practice. Mm-hmm. Not easy. Like the the pain and suffering is real. Past all the pomp, the celebrations, they're individuals. Yeah, some are seem okay, but there's loss, varying degrees of loss, and mm-hmm. it's overwhelming. 
it can be overwhelming. Absolutely. And what would you recommend uh, to somebody who's transitioning back into civilian life? Hmm. I should have compassion with yourself. Like it's, um, and I really hope you get plugged into the resources that are there and you have to want to advocate for them because it's a journey, right? Mm -hmm. Life is not the same. You can't see life the same after being at war, being posted, having friends mm-hmm. or family, you know, losing friends or family. Right. And and a lot of men associate getting help with the weakness. Weakness, um, yeah. What are your thoughts on that? Having, requesting for help is a sign of strength. It takes a strong individual to ask for help. Mm-hmm. And I'm thankful as a society, we're more, we're talking more about mental health, but we still have a long way to go. But getting help, and you know what, this is a fact, a lot of the mental health challenges that our veterans experience is not due to some chemical imbalance, depression. It's due to mm-hmm. losses and hurt and needs that have been met. And for a lot right. of them, it's struggling to pay their bills because the resources are limited and they truly do need us to have their backs. Yeah, and it's difficult ours. to get a, a job as well coming back, especially if exactly, you're suffering with exactly. any of what we mentioned. Exactly. Yeah, absolutely. Well, thank you so much for joining the program once again, Dr. Mitchell. I really appreciate it. And um, just want to repeat your website again for the listeners who, anyone who wants to get in touch with you and get some productivity coaching. Yeah. Holisticwellnessstrategies.com. Thanks for listening to the Sunday Night Health Show podcast. You can subscribe, rate, or review on your favorite podcast app. And if you've got a question about your health, the nurse is always in. So email me, nursetalk at hotmail.com, and I just might answer your question anonymously, of course, on next week's show. For now, have a happy and healthy week.